Well, it is a joy to be with you guys again. Uh, we've been away, my wife and I, as we uh, went on vacation with our kids, uh, camping. We had a great time, and it is good to be back. Uh, hopefully it does not show, but I am tired. Uh, camping is fun. Uh, we had all the grandkids and their cousins, and there was 21 of us and about 10 kids, so we are a little tired, but it is, it is great to be back together with each of you. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we look at our passage today. Let's see if I can get up on the screen. And turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 1. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. It's also on this screen above. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things unto which angels long to look. Father, I ask for your help today as we look at your word, that you would help us to understand that in which you have called us to understand. May we see the significance of the grace and the salvation you have granted us. Help me to be clear. Help me to speak the words that are edifying to these people, this body of believers. You know our frailties. You know the things that can be distractions to us as we hear your word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear that in which we need to hear. We thank you for an opportunity to share your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The story began one summer's day towards the end of the 19th century when an when a English city boy was on visit to rural Scotland. That afternoon, the boy went swimming in a small countryside lake. After swimming quite a distance from shore, a severe cramp seized him so that he could not continue swimming. He was in great pain and soon cried out at the top of his voice for help. A farm boy working in a nearby field heard the city boy scream and ran as fast as he could to the lake. There, the farm boy threw off his shirt and dove into the water, swam to the imperiled city boy, and brought him safely to shore. Several years later, the two boys met once again. The city boy still filled with gratitude that the other boy had saved his life, was thrilled to see the farm boy again and asked him what career the boy had decided to pursue. The farm boy said he had chosen the career in medicine. Since the city boy's parents were quite wealthy and were greatly indebted to the boy, other boys for saving their son's life. Upon hearing of the farm boy's career choice, they immediately promised to pay for his medical education. They followed through on, this, on their promise, and the young man went on to have a brilliant career in scientific investigation. In 1928, the farm boy, then both a physician and a bacterialist, discovered the famous wonder drug, penicillin. 
1945, he shared the Nobel Prize with two other scientists and discovered the development of the antibiotic. The Scottish farm boy turned scientist researcher who died in 1955 was Alexander Fleming. The rescue city boy also gained great renown during World War II. He contracted the life-threatening case of pneumonia. He recovered at a hospital after receiving penicillin, which meant that indirectly the one-time far boy, farm boy Alexander Fleming had saved his life twice. The city boy's name was Winston Churchill. The famous wartime British prime minister and world statesman. Interestingly, just like Fleming's, Churchill won a Nobel Prize. But in his instance, he won the 1953 award in literature of his incisive writing on the history of the Second World War. It is wonderful to save a life, and even more wonderful to save someone's life twice, especially when the one saved was such an influential person as Winston Churchill. But the hard-working, selfless uh, contribution of Alexander Fleming's are nothing compared to the greatness of saving a person's eternal soul. That great salvation is the heart of the Apostle Paul's, uh, Apostle Peter's concern in this passage. He wants his believing audience to focus on that full, final rescue from sin, Satan, death, and hell that God has graciously chosen to forgive through his son, Jesus Christ. Peter celebrates salvation greatness by reminding his readers that no matter how difficult the circumstances are or how severe their persecution may be, they can confidently hold to the hope of eternal salvation. You see, we would all agree that the discovery of penicillin has been a lifesaver for thousands, yet maybe even millions. Yet I wonder, do we see the gift of salvation that same way? Do we not see how many countless individuals would spend eternity in hell if it were not for salvation. Last time I spoke on 1 Peter, we saw that Peter praised God for his, praised God for his son who caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you can see that in verses 3 and 4 to an inheritance that belonged to believers. Peter reminds them that even though life is hard at this time, they, are, they can rejoice in their salvation. And you can see that in verse 6. It is in this season that reveals the genuineness of their faith. As Peter observes, these believers, in the midst of their suffering, sees that they have a deep love for, and joy for Christ, even though they have never seen him or met him. And you can see that in verse 8. Here's my proposition for today. The greatness of God's grace and our salvation. Peter wanted the new Christians, the believers, to understand their salvation is priceless. And their ancestors, the prophets, searched and studied to understand what they now know 
and they have now experienced. You see, the prophets studied, but they could not see what it would be like. They couldn't understand at all. The prophets longed to understand this salvation. Verse 10 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time. The prophets longed to understand what they saw and studied, but they could not fully grasp and understand it. We see in Daniel 8, 15, as he says, When I, Daniel, had seen this vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Daniel was saying, who is this man? And what is the significance of this man? He did not understand. In Hosea 12.10, God says, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. But God also did not share everything. He gave them a glimpse. We also see in Amos 3, 7, it says, For the Lord, gives, for the Lord does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. But even as the prophets are now looking at their own scriptures to understand it, they cannot understand fully that in which they long to understand. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Can you imagine being a prophet and you see God's truth, you understand it to some degree, but yet there's still things that you don't understand. You cannot grasp. We can see that God spoke to the prophets, but they understood about salvation was limited. They searched and inquired carefully as they wanted to understand this salvation. They saw something but could not grasp its full meaning. Now, it would be a mistake to think that they did not enjoy salvation as you look in the Old Testament. That would be a mistake. You see, they received salvation without seeing its full accomplishment, without seeing Jesus Christ or having a relationship with him. They could not see or understand Christ's life death, and his resurrection. Hebrews eleven, thirty-nine 39, and 40 tells us, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they could not um, be made perfect. They did not have the fullness of what that salvation looked like. They only had it in part. You see, at the core of salvation is God's grace as he desires to save sinners. This is at the divine act. This is a divine act by God himself. We read in Acts 20, verse 32, as Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see, it is God who is gracious. It is God who shows mercy to those who are lost. Moses experienced some of this grace as God says to him, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, 
the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see, grace and mercy is at the very core of who God is. And God says, I will show grace and mercy to whom I choose to. I'm sure you remember the story of Jonah. As he prays, he says, Lord, is it not that what, uh, what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew. That's why Jonah went the opposite direction. He knew that as he shared the truth that God says, I am going to punish you. Jonah knew that God could say, I forgive you and show mercy. Jonah did not want that to happen. You see, the prophets understood that salvation came by God's grace as they put their faith in him. The writer of Hebrew looks back at the patriarchs and he pointed out that salvation comes by faith. Chapter 11 of Hebrews is often called the Hall of Faith. We see that the writer of Hebrews pointed out certain individuals of old, as he says, by faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. These are just a few of the ones mentioned in this chapter. But in verse 6, he says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. We must believe by faith in who God is. What they did not know was the person and who he was. Who would be the giver of this grace and this salvation. This is why they searched and required so carefully. They wanted to know who is this person. Who will bring forth this grace and this salvation. Who is he? Peter has been reminding these believers of the one who has given them the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You can see that in verse 4. You see, they know who the giver is and what he has done on their behalf. That is why they love him even though they have never met him. And you can see that in verse 8. You see, the prophets did not know this information. See, they are looking forward to the future, and they can't completely see it clearly. But Peter is reminding his readers as they look backwards, as they then look forward. They know who this person is. We see this also with the last prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, as he also wants to know, are you the one? In Matthew 11, verses 1 through 3, tells us, when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look to another? See, P see John also wants to know, 
Are you the one the prophets studied about? Are you the one that we are looking for, or should we look for another? Are you the one to bring in this salvation? You see, John, just like the other prophets, was looking, but not fully understanding that in which he was seeing. I, too, remember a time when I was seeing, but not fully understanding that in which I saw. I have always had decent eyesight until I turned 40, and it kind of went down from there. I don't recall all the details, but I picked up a coin. I knew that it was a nickel. I can see that, but I couldn't see the date. And I was all excited as a very amateur um, coin collector. I was all excited to think I found one of those rare coins that made it through the process of minting but didn't have a date on it. I was so excited. But the problem wasn't with the coin. The problem with my, with my eyesight. I could see, but not fully understand what I saw. I couldn't read the fine print on the coin. You see, as the prophets studied the ancient writings, they understood there were things they just couldn't understand. They couldn't see it clearly. They couldn't grasp all of its meaning. They understood, yes, it is God's words that they were studying. It was breathed out by God himself. So they were trying to understand all that they could. The prophets studied the ancient writings, but were not able to fully understand that in which they read. This salvation was so profound that though the prophets studied their own writings, they were not fully able to understand the magnitude and the giver of this salvation. In verse 11, it says, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. When he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets not only wanted to know about this salvation and this grace, but they wanted to know the identity of the person. That is why John the Baptist asked the question, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? When Jesus res responded to John's disciples, he didn't give them a simple answer like, yes, I am the one. Jesus gave proof that he was the one the prophets were looking for. As he said in Matthew 11, 4 through 6, and Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Leopards are clean, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended by me. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In just a few short days, Jesus will go to the cross and many will be offended by him. Yet, what they did not know, Jesus was fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah predicted. Although the prophet Isaiah wrote about the Messiah would suffer, he did not understand this would bring him glory. 
I am sure Isaiah questioned the meaning of what he wrote, trying to understand its full meaning. We see in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, at you, his appearance will be so marred beyond human sublance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths before him for that which was for which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. You see, the prophet Isaiah could not understand that all what that all meant. Who is this person? And why must he suffer? Why must the Messiah, the Christ, suffer? Zechariah 12:10 also tells us, "And I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him." as one mourns for an only child, and weeping bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. I'm sure Zechariah is wondering, who is this one who is to be pierced? And why would they mourn and weep? And weep? We know this is yet to come as Christ returns. As Israel looks at Jesus and understands he is the Messiah. But at this time, they are trying to understand who he is and who is it that is yet to come. We see in Matthew thirteen sixteen and 17, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see and did not see, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. See, Jesus is telling his disciples, you are at the point where you get to see the fulfillment of what the prophets of old longed to see, but yet could not see and could not understand. You get to see the fulfillment of that. A salvation not the, for the prophet's time but theirs. Verse 12 tells us, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. It was not for their time, but, yet, but for a time yet to come in the future. We see in Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, that although the patriarchs were acknowledged for their faith, there was something much better yet to come, as it says. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had prom as God had provided something better for us, that apart from they should not be made perfect. You see, they got to fulfill see the fulfillment of that. What they had seen in the past was only in part, but not in full. The writer of Hebrews says that the others were commended by their faith, yet God had promised something better for us. It was 
It wasn't that the patriarchs did not receive grace and salvation. They did not know to whom that grace and salvation was ministered. They did not know Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You see, it is through the preaching of God's word that touched the hearts of these believers and changed them. It was through the Holy Spirit that gave the disciples courage and boldness to preach that good news. It was the good news that changed the lives of the believers Peter is writing to. The Holy Spirit is the promise that Jesus said he would ask his Father to send. Jesus tells his disciples he would ask his Father to send them a comforter, the Holy Spirit. We see that in John 14, verses 15 through 17. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it ne neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be with you. You see, we see the fulfillment of this in Acts 2, in verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it, and it filled the entire house with all um, that were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. We also read in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, as Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, he says, as he has one simple message for them, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I dis, dis, um, decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your, fight, your faith might rest in the wisdom not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, Paul is saying, I, I am not trying to give you something that is not beneficial. He says, I have one simple, simple message for you, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what I want to share with you. That is what I want you to know. That is what I want you to understand. It is... God's power, not in my own. Just as the, the prophets long to understand the magnitude of this great salvation and this grace, the latter part of verse 12 tells us things in which angels long to look. It is not that the angels are in need of salvation, but because they have an overwhelming curiosity about this salvation and this grace. So they look on in amazement. You see, the manifestation of this glorious grace and the salvation is seen in the church. 
as God has established a new people for his son. It is in the church that angels are intently looking at. Ephesians 3.10 tells us, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, the angels are looking at you and I. They are amazed how God, a righteous God, will save sinners. Jesus tells us in John 15, 10, that the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. You see, the angels marvel that a holy God would save sinners by giving them grace for the forgiveness of their sins. That is why the angels are fascinated by this glorious salvation. And that is why they rejoice. They are seeing God's grace ministered every time a new person comes to know Christ as the Lord and Savior, and they experience this salvation. You see, in our text, Peter is reminded these Christians of the greatness of the salvation that they were given. It is a salvation that is beyond description, given by grace. It is a salvation of great worth, beyond compare. With the understanding of this grace and salvation, we begin to see why Peter wants these believers to focus on their salvation rather than the hardship they are presently going through. You might ask, what is this salvation? It is, a, it is the suffering of Christ and the subsequence of his glory. You see, it was anticipated by the prophets. It was revealed by the Holy Spirit. It was preached by the apostles. And it is a marvel by the angels. What a glorious salvation this is. It is in this salvation that gives us an inheritance that cannot be taken from us as it is stored in heaven. Again, that is in verse 4. It is in this salvation we rejoice in, even though we are grieved by various trials. You see that in verse 6. We can be filled with joy because of this salvation that has saved our souls through Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 9. Peter wants these believers to understand that they have something to rejoice about. Even though their situation at this time is grievous. As we have studied previous, we understood that the, that the Christians were being persecuted, that they experienced suffering. As we go through the book, you will see that Peter reminds them to watch how they conduct themselves so that they are not, have a reason for persecution or suffering, that they are to walk in a manner that brings Christ's glory. What value would you put on this grace and this salvation? Do we understand or see the worth given in everything that we have? Do we understand it is worth giving our very lives? Everything in which we have. Jesus gives a word picture to help us understand how valuable 
this is. I would like you to turn to Matthew 13, and we're going to look at verses 44 through 50. This is what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that, has, that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of age. The angels will come out and separate evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I hope you see that this gift of salvation by God's grace is priceless. We can be thankful for penicillin as it has saved many lives. But we have been given is far more priceless. It has saved our very souls from eternal torment. I wonder how many of us have lost the excitement over this grace and this salvation given. Has it become second-rate news to us? Or do we still marvel over this greatness? You see, Peter wants these believers not to forget what they have and how valuable it is. He says, remember. There could be some of you in this group today who don't understand that in which we are talking about, about this great gift of salvation, as you have not experienced this great gift. I want you to know that it is a gift from God. It is not from us or our doing, but it's all about him, what he has done. So in our closing, I want you to turn to Ephesians 2. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And this is what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." You see, this is all before God steps in. You see, we were all dead in our sins. But we are pleased that the next section of verses tells us that it was God who makes the difference. And it is all because of him. It says, but 
God. I don't want you to miss those two significant words, but God. If you've ever been around a dead person, you understand a dead person can do nothing. In our previous passage, it says that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, which means that you and I could not do anything. We could not move towards God because why? We were dead. We could do nothing. I grew up in a convalescent home with my family, as that was our business for quite a few years. And as someone passed away in our facility, I would often go in and look at them. And my question would always be, is, where are they now? They are now dead, and they can do no more. They cannot now make a judgment to follow Christ. Why? Because they are dead. We can miss the significance of those two words, but God. It is he who makes the difference. It is not us. Let's continue reading. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him, walk in them. See, verse 4 tells us, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, a transformation took place. We were dead but then now we are alive. Dead. But in the middle here is, but God. It is he who stepped in and moved us from here to here. Guess what? You didn't do that. I did not do that. It was God who moved us from death to life. I pray that you would understand the significance because a dead person can do nothing. You cannot will yourself from death to life. It is all because of God and his grace. That is why the, the prophets are amazed. They're looking at something that they can't understand that is about to take place. They want to understand it. They want to fully understand it, but they can't. They can't see the significance of that person that you now know of. Jesus Christ.
they don't know who he is. They know something is coming that is worth knowing and worth understanding, but they can't see it. I pray today that you would understand the significance of this salvation. And if the Lord is pricking your heart, I pray that you would not reject him, but you would surrender your life to him and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins, that I too could experience this life, that I would no longer stay dead, but I would move from death to life because of your grace, your mercy, that I could too rejoice in this inheritance that has been given to me through Jesus Christ, that you understand it, this salvation is priceless. What we have cannot be bought. What we have cannot be finangled. It is all because of God who has moved us from death to life. Father, I thank you for your kindness and your goodness. I thank you for your son and the gift of salvation that he has granted us. I pray, Father, that we, in the hearing the truth of your word, would not reject it, but we would humble ourselves, that we would cry for mercy that we would say yes to you. May you do a work in our hearts today. May we rejoice in the gift of salvation. May we marvel at the salvation and the grace that you have given. May we understand that it is priceless. May you get the glory in you alone. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.